Hello, everybody. Thank you once again for tuning in and joining us today for another episode of Africa Curriculum. In this episode, we will continue in our theme of understanding the African identity. Joining us in the conversation today is a very special guest and good friend of mine, Dr. Dalitsu Rue. Dalitsu holds a PhD in philosophy from Texas A&M University and is undoubtedly one of the leading African thinkers of our time. Dalitsu and I go way back to our days as freshmen in college. Having known him for a while, I have a lot of stories to share about him, and some are embarrassing, but let's not go there. Dalitsu's impact on my life started long before we formally met. When I first arrived on campus, everyone told me I had to meet this guy. At the time, I had seen him walking around campus carrying a lot of books. In fact, Dalitsu loved reading to the point where he always maxed out the number of books allowed for a student to check out from the library at any given time. Today, it has paid off well, and now he is a professor of philosophy, helping others develop their intellectual curiosity. So, Dalitsu, thank you for joining us today at the Curriculum. Yo, brother, thank you so much, man. It's a long time coming, man. Um, a long time coming. I remember the Fresno State days, man. I remember you running Coffee Hour and all the conversations we've had since then. You moving to Houston, me being in College Station. So it's just always a good ch- time every time we get a chance to connect and be able to talk about being African in the modern world. Yeah, thank you for that. Today, we just want to have a discussion to talk to you, um, given that you're somebody who spends a lot of time thinking. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so <clears throat> I was born and raised in Zambia, Um one of those British colonial projects. Uh, we got our independence in 1964. Um, uh, I moved to the country when I was 13, which was in 2002. So I moved to the States in 2002. I've been here since then. Um, I went to high school. I've gone to college, did postgrad, And now, um, as you in- alluded to in the intro, I'm now a professor of philosophy. So um, you said you moved here um, in 2002. Do you remember much about your days in Zambia? Yeah, man. You know, like those are my formative years, right? From like, you know, from the time I was born to I was 12. Um, yeah, the whole experience, man. You know, I went to I went to private school as a kid. Um, and at some point I went to boarding school. So I've had the best of that experience, right? The boarding school was definitely in a bush. Like it was, you know, typical African style in a bush, strict regiment. Um, different from the private school I went to, which was also very strict when I think about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, all those experiences, man, you know, growing up, having a tribal identity was something that was big that I still remember, you know, so I, so Zambia has about 72 tribes. And as you know, most of us are born into these tribes, given our lineages. Um, and I remember how much those things formulated my identity. I had cousins who were from different tribes and how we would try to negotiate those understandings. And so when I moved to the country, I think high school was interesting for other reasons in which my high school was very eclectic, right? So I went to school in South Boston High and yeah. South Boston is predominantly an Irish community. So the school I went to had three schools and we always joke about this now, but literally the school was separated by racial groups. Um, the third floor was mostly where all the black kids were. So you had black Americans, you had kids from the West Indies, you had kids from Africa, and then you had the Asian populations from Southeast Asia. Um, and so that was an interesting transition for me, just in terms of navigating a space in which the first 12 years of my life, what I knew about my identity was shaped by like tribal lineages, moving to this country to having to understand a homogeneous identity as being black, right? was like an interesting experience to go through navigating, you know, friends from the Caribbean, from the West African continent, outside of the continent, to even my own sort of side in terms of Central Southern Africa. Yeah, so you mentioned that was uh, sort of a struggle navigating that shift. Um, what were some of the things that you did to be able to overcome that? How were you able to maybe accept that you are no longer part of this tribal lineage that you, you had grown up to, uh, to identify or to accept? Yeah, man, that, that's a great question, man. You know, there are a couple ways, a couple things that I think about now, man. So, like, one of the things I did appreciate in high school, I had uh, English classes, which were reading classes, and two of my instructors, Miss Hope, who was Black American, and Miss uh, Davis was Jamaican, and they would always make us read. Miss Hope gave me Richard Wright's Native Son, and Miss Davis gave me Marcus Garvey's Opinions 
and thoughts of Marcus Garvey. So right off the boat, man, you know, I'm straight from Africa, dealing with its continental identity in terms of Zambia, Africa. And then I come to the country here, then having to contend with sort of the diaspora. I remember reading Richard Wright's text, right? It's a story about a young boy in Chicago, Bigger Thomas, dealing with the racial components and trying to understand that whole situation. I won't spoil it for the listeners, but I recommend reading it if you haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, Marcus Garvey was talking about Africa from a different perspective, right? Like it was such an out-of-body experience to hear somebody, you know, I here I actually had a chance to see some of his stuff, um, but even reading his opinions. And then I think for me, that was really embodied by the ways in which I had Jamaican friends, Haitian friends who took a lot of pride in their national identities, right? Like these were kids who were walking around with like, you know, Jamaican chains, they had their flags on. And that really forced me to kind of deal with being black in terms of the more robust, robust sense, right? Like here are kids who took pride in speaking Patois, right? Like my Nigerian friends were speaking Pidgin English, right? Like, so we were in this community and then we're listening to like rap music, right? So we're trying to negotiate these identities, but there's really this cultural pride in terms of like who we were as people that really was a really a springboard for me moving forward the rest of my sort of tenure in this country. So that means that it was the environment in that you found yourself in, in Boston and you've been surrounded by a lot of these other uh, black people who had this cultural pride that it would help you. Uh, so in, in a way, this sort of helped you uh, accept or shape your own identity here. Yeah, no, definitely, bro. I mean, I think like high school definitely did. And then, you know, I mean, I had challenges, right? Like there were real things. I was, I was 13 when I moved, man. And, you know, teenagers can be rough. Like there were still stereotypical things I had to deal with, right? Like, I, you know, I used to have people ask me, like, did you walk from Africa to here? And, you know, it's like, well, first of all, I'm from Zambia, right? Like Zambia's where I'm from. So let's get that straight. And then just like, how do you walk, bro? Like we're talking about countries and then ocean. And I come to Boston, like, just explain to me, right? And so having to contend with very negative stereotypes of Africans and then just, you know, having to deal with, like, say, white people. I had a lot of white people between high school and even graduating, right, where they would say things to me like I was a different black, right? Like, and, you know, white people yeah. are coding that in terms of like, but you're not black American, you're different, you know? And having to deal with this ways with people create divisions and partitions of your identity and having to wrestle with that. Um, so that was a challenge too, and having to figure out how to bridge that gap between like, oh, you know, I'm Zambian, I'm a son of Africa, and then I'm also in the diaspora, right? Like I'm in communities in which, you know, people's uh, legacies are tied back to Africa, and how do I bridge that? Yeah, so th that's interesting. Um, so let's let's move on a little bit here in the story. So you, you arrived here, you're young, you're 13, you had this struggle, but again, you met this community of people who had pride in their cultural heritage. Um, so now you finished high school. Um, what was it like when you moved on to college? Yeah, so so I was so man. So Marcus Garvey, man, was somebody that really impacted me. Um, and then I was reading, you know, uh, Malcolm X. So this lineage of Pan Africanism and Black nationalism was really strong. And then, like I said, just the cultural roots that I, you know, being immersed with so many friends from the Caribbean and even from the West Africa. Um, I took that on, man. So when I got to Fresno State, uh, I was one of the co-founders of the Black Student Union on campus. There were like three of us, Ihoma, um, Erica, and, um, and and Anthony. So two people were like, Anthony and Ihoma, obviously, are Nigerian. And then uh, Erica's um, from Sacramento area. And so we all came together and we're just trying to figure out what it meant for us to have such desperate, you know, sort of understandings of being African and Black, trying to form a group. So we started Black Students Union, and obviously we went through the classical debates, right? Do we make it Black Student Union because it leaves out African students, or is that too not encompassing for different, you know, people in the spectrum? Is it that the more Black students who are phenotypically Black come to the group? Like, we went through all these debates about how to structure the group, but one of the things I'm proud about was that we created a space in which there were different debates we could have about formulating our identity that I think BSU still stands as one of the sort of, you know, focal points of black students who go to Fresno State. But I remember when I went there in 2004, 2006, actually, um, yeah, Erica, Ihoma, and Anthony and I were really trying to wrestle with these things and trying to figure out how to create a space for black students across the diaspora on campus. I do remember when I showed up at Fresno State, they were trying to recruit me to come to BSU yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not yeah. sure I did at the time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're a busy man, I understand. And we finally connected, though, so things work <laughs> out. 
Yeah. You are here in college. You spent quite a long time in college. Yeah. How did you get to decide? I mean, you studied philosophy, um, but, but you didn't do philosophy in an undergrad, right? No. So how did you get to decide to shift? I mean, is it because of all of this quest for you trying to really understand your identity? Was that what pushed you to go into this study of people, culture, and now even philosophy? Yeah, no, definitely, bro. Definitely, for sure. Like I said, I mean, you know, I mean, being removed from home, Zambia, family, friends, um, and then the continent and everything I grew up and having to learn a whole different system just made me more inquisitive about the American lifestyle and just even the way white people spoke about black people, right? And then moving beyond that, like we were talking about earlier, this partition between how Africans seem to be more benign and they're more caring, they're more educated, as opposed to what their stereotype of African-Americans was. And that to me was so counter because like I said, I had so many friends from different communities who was like, no, like these, I was learning so much. Like I said, you know, some of my biggest influences like Malcolm X, Jay-Z, right? We're like are black Americans. And so that was an incongruency in my head. And so I remember that time um, in 2007, a visiting professor came in and he was teaching hip hop and philosophy. And everybody yeah. was telling me to audit class. So I sat in his class and basically the dude was teaching Jay-Z in the class, right? I was like, Jay-Z is a philosopher? So I was like, this can't be right, right? So I was like, yo, what's up, man? Like, I want to know more about this. Um, and so he then was like, well, if you want me to teach you, you're going to have to read 100 books, right? And then he can challenge me to like read 100 books. And I was like, ah, you know, whatever. So I did that. And basically he trained me how to study philosophy. And so we'd go back. So hip hop became a way for me to study philosophy broad in, in spectrum of like black thinking, creativity, and what it meant. Um, so it allowed me to then look at the lineage in terms of music, the musical aspects of black thinking about why the blues, for example, can only come from black people in America, right? Like not the Irish, not any other group created the blues. And when you track that back, there's a lot of lineages back to the African continent and the different uh, groups that came to the new world, brought musical instruments, but even just the thinking around musicality. So I think hip hop for me then became a way to really connect my identities because I started remembering like, yo, I would listen to reggae when I was in high school. We'd listen to Afrobeats before these new guys came in when P-Square was still a thing, right? Like we'd listen to that. Yeah. All right. So like the connection between my formative years in high school where a lot of my friends and I became culturally rooted by trading songs and the music and the dress codes that informed what I started thinking about philosophy in terms of like, what do black people think about the world? This is very interesting. So you had been challenged to read a hundred books. Um, yeah. How did you, how did you take that? I mean, because there's this stereotype that if you want to hide something from a black man, put it in a book. Yeah. How was that? I mean, how did you overcome reading a hundred books? Because I know you, you're the guy who was always in the library, <laughs> renting out books, maxed out, begging other people to check out books to you. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, bro. So, I mean, a lot of this, too, was just me being, it was humorous. It was being young. So the guy really, like, so one of the things I discovered was that he was trained by Cornell West, who's like a prominent yeah. black philosopher, right? And so I remember that semester, too, I was taking a class with a Ghanaian professor, Dr. Yao. And in that class, we read Race Matters by Cornell West, which is Cornell West's most popular book. And so Dr. Yao would always talk to me about like Africa and Ghana and this responsibility that us new generations of Africans had. And he was like, you know, my time as an old head is passing. So it's on you all to take on seriously what the legacy of Africans looks like. And he kept encouraging me in terms of like, you know, you, you're really driven by intellectual pursuits and that's important. So the time when I met Dr. Bailey and he challenged me to read 100 books, I took that seriously because, you know, just thinking about the sense of which my elders were saying things to me like, you know, we've done our best. And we're passing the mantle on to you all to have somebody like Dr. Bailey trained at Cornell West tell me, like, if you want me to mentor you, you're going to have to read 100 books. I was easily going to say yes, because I understood that, like, you know, one of the things I wanted to put forward was understanding black thinking and want to be a black intellectual. So if that meant the training was I had to sit down and read 100 books, I'm not going to say no. I'm going to take on the challenge and say whatever it takes for me to learn how to be a black intellectual, I'll do so. Wow, that, uh, that's actually uh, inspiring. Uh, I know that I did have another challenge like that myself uh, where someone did challenge me. I read at least one book every week. Let's talk about this uh, aspect of reading books, right? Um, a lot of us, a lot of the African immigrants who come to America, our very first focus um, 
many times it's just to make money, right? It's to make money, support family back home. And so um, how was this quest of yours to become an intellectual, spend all of your time reading and thinking? How was that uh, accepted or how was that received by your family? Man, yeah, that's a great question, bro. So what's actually interesting, right? Like my dad was a successful businessman back home. Um, and so when he moved to the country, he had actually moved to try to expand one of his businesses. Um, and during the move, the business back home went bankrupt because the guy he left took the money and he, his, his daughter had an ailment. So he had to use the money instead of telling my dad about it, right? He went to the back channel. So the business went bankrupt. So my dad went to school for his BA. Um, so he was studying and he was, real, and my dad is actually an author too, by the way. So, so I grew up in a household in which there was this dual thing, right? My dad was still is a businessman. Um, and then the proxy to see him, like he was actually writing novels. I can remember when I first moved here and like the one studio apartment that we stayed in, literally like I would watch him in the morning, sit at his computer, writing all day. Um, so, so I became curious and fascinated with this sense of like the vocation in which ideas can mean something, especially as an African man, like to see like, oh snap, you know, I knew my dad as a businessman, an entrepreneur, very successful, famous for the different things he did home. To see his transition into being an author and pursuing intellectual gifts, I think made it just much more for me easier because I had a role model who set up set a tone. Um, so that became a, a space for me to also craft out my own identity, right? Like I was saying, between going to high school and trying to figure out, and Boston is interesting for all the schools that are there, right? Like I never thought about going to Harvard or any of those things because I was just like, eh, you know, I don't know if Harvard is my thing. My dad obviously ended up going into Harvard, but I was just like, I can't do that. Um, so I think for me, it was still a sense in which like, how do I become different from my father in one sense, right? It was like, he's a very successful entrepreneur, he's a novelist. And what is my own trajectory in terms of the world? So, so that became important. I said, even my dad would put this on my head because he was a child of a post-colonial country in which he saw the liberation of the country. He would always remind me about sort of my uh, responsibility, right, as a new generation African to the continent. That's actually very interesting. You know, you saying that, how do I become different from my father? Um, I think that for a lot of us uh, Africans, the, the mindset has always been that I will either continue in the footsteps of my dad. You know, if my dad is a big businessman, I will take over the business, multiply, grow it. But um, yeah. it's interesting what you know, education, part of that exposure and education, how able to help shape you that yeah. you have to expand your own intellectual capacity and become your own person and find for your, yourself your own identity. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, one of the things I appreciate about my father, man, like he would let me debate him about different things. And obviously, and you, know, and you know how we grew up in Africa, right? Like, and I'm using that too broadly, but you know how we grew up in our different countries in Africa. There's certain traditions in which you don't speak back to your elders, right? Like, yeah. there are ways in which elders have authority. Um, and, you know, my dad was trying different ways to encourage that, even adhering to traditional ways in which you respect your elders. My dad still wanted me to develop my own voice. So there were times we would just sit at the dinner table and he would be asking me about what I was reading and push me on different arguments. And that invariably helped me take it seriously because, you know, I was in a household in which people understood that I love to read. And part of that was also expanding my ability to be able to vocalize different things. And, and I think even with my dad, like it was this really way in which we had to engage with like, you know, most sociologists would say like, you know, when you have, as immigrants, when you have kids, the second generation of your kids would tend to be more American because they have, you know, they have more lifestyles, are more youth culture driven. So for me, I came at a younger age, my dad was much older. So bridging the gap between having so many friends from different continents um, and even the country itself, I had to explain to my father by affinity, for example, for rap, right? Like rap has so much profane language and my dad was definitely not into like rap music, right? Until I did research on Jay-Z and put a book out with my mentor. He was like, I understand. But that, but that also comes again from like, you know, my dad created the space for me to be able to engage with ideas and even challenge him about certain things. Um, so that really kind of set the bounds for me in terms of my own identity as an African man. That's actually very good uh, because I think that part of our identity, um, from what I'm, I'm getting from you, is also how our families are able to help us either accept that or to help us build that identity. Because yeah. if there is some kind of a pushback or uh, maybe not the 
an environment that is not very well receptive of encouraging you to be able to pursue and um, of course, a path for yourself, then it becomes really difficult and accept who you are. Yeah, no, most definitely, man. Like, I mean, you know, like we talk about, like even with our parents, right? Most of us, most of our parents are either maybe have migrated here or they've hoped we find a lifestyle that enables us to bring certain things back home to the continent and the countries we come from. Um, and like every, every parent, I think, has aspirations for their children to exceed where they've finished off in life. Um, and I think for my dad, it was just, it was interesting, right? Because he moved here for business and then he got, you know, he pursued intellectual pursuits. And he's always had intellectual pursuits as part of his like venture, but he became so good at being an entrepreneur. And so I think the one thing that he allowed for me was to be able to move between the space in which I can either do business, but if intellectual pursuits are something I do, that matters. So yeah, I think that just comes with the process that we all have. I think we are invariably shaped by our environments and the ways we're exposed to different things by family, friends, and the world. Given that you're a philosopher, um, I think now I want to start to, you know, I guess get some philosophy out of you <laughs> or the philosophy okay. side. <laughs> um, we have this, uh, this issue of identity is very important. But one thing that I have noticed and I have realized is that um, a lot of us, when as Africans, when we come to America, we try to shy away from this identity. Um, for example, Someone like you, that it's Rue, you have, I mean, for all intents and purposes, no English name or foreign name, right? Right, right. But some of us, when we come to America, one of the first things we do is that, well, my name is so hard for people to pronounce. I'm going to change. Yeah, call right. me John, call me Peter, call me Paul, or what have you. Um, yeah. Even the way we talk, right? We change that, switch our accent because we want to be understood by people. Um, so why is that the case? Why is it that we feel the need um, to conform uh, in, a, in a new environment by switching up who we are? Yeah, no, that's a great question, bro. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a really great question, man. And, you know, so Franz Fanon has an interesting text, right? White Skin, Black Mask. He talks about the experience of Martinique Blacks who go to France and they're confronted by these sort of stereotypes about what it means to be Martinican in the French culture. And, and so he calls it over-determinacy and the ways in which People in this context, for white people, we have to show how civilized we are in terms of parroting their language and behaviors and norms, right? So said differently, because so much of the continental experience that white people had with Africa has always been based on stereotypes, right? Whether we're the cursed sons of Ham that God cursed, whether we're the missing link between apes and human beings, whether we're cannibals or whether we have women who are protruding butts, like the Venus Hottentot, right, or the Bushmen. Right, like so, there are ways in which we encounter stereotypes, and for most of us, right, immigration, like migrating to these countries, Western countries, is also based on meritocracy. So a lot of us are admitted here based on particular skill sets that white people and white nations have set up for us. Right, they don't want us to come in here having an affinity for our own identities. And so, even when you think about the literature that's happened in Africa, the stereotypes have always been based on uncivilized people. So you don't, right, like this this assumption that. Africa is populated solely by, say, people, quote-unquote, they're called Bushmen, as though those people are the apex of African civilization. And they, they are part of the African civilization, and African civilizations can move in different forms, right? Given the environments people are in, they will do with those environments that is necessary for them. But I think so much of what the metropoles became because of colonialism was this imposition in which white people created particular norms and standards that they wanted to see replicated. Right. So coming to school is a byproduct of saying you're somebody who assumes that metocracy happens in, in terms of social mobility. Right. Um, so immigration, for example, doesn't ever deal with colonialism. They don't want to talk about the fact that, like, 
Africa needs reparations, right? But the one way you redress that is by saying we want only the best of the best Africans coming into this Western world. So whether you're coming here because you are a Silicon Valley acolyte, right? Whether you have entertainment, those things in terms of high school labor that help the economy of Western nations is why most of us are pulled into these countries, right? So, so said differently, white people want to see us close to them. The more we can speak and talk like them and doesn't threaten their ideas of what black people can be outside of their imagination, we're allowed to come into these countries. Mm. So, um, so is this, I mean, this is interesting. This whole aspect of that to mention that they don't want us to have an affinity for our own identity. Is it because if we do have an affinity for our own identity, we will want to now start to maybe define for ourselves our own path and maybe move away from the norms that they have set up? Yeah, no, absolutely, man. I, I mean, you know, one of the things that's always, like, take, for example, quote-unquote, the slave narrative. When you look at most of the slave narratives, most of those, the early, say, like, 17th century, were written by people who used the African names, right? Like, they were clear to mm-hmm. use the African names to be able to say, like, yo, sure, you enslaved me and gave me the name George, but I remember my name was Equiano, right? Like, I yeah. remember my name Equiano. So they were stressing the ways in which, like, no, I understand that my identity is this. It's not a slave, right? So even when we came to this this continent under the guise of slavery, there was still a ways when we retained our African identity. But those things were so fearful for white people. They would make sure that, you know, we weren't congregating together or if people were in churches or they were galvanizing or even going back to Africa, that was a threat because the nomenclature of a slave meant that you were being enculturated into Western ethics, identity, in which you're obedient to a white family, right? So for you to posit an African identity showed that, no, I knew the family I came from. I have a kinship structure, a political system. And I think this is some of the things that I appreciate about Afrobeats in which, like, they refuse to solely sing and speak in English. Like, they're using Nigerian idioms to be able to force Western listeners to engage with that, right? Like, there are ways in which yeah. I think the Western world is always, again, trying to mitigate the ways in which Africans can be able to say, like, we've given you civilization. We've given you the notions of democracy, Christianity. Right. But so much of that is that white people have created systems in which they want to be seen as the civilizing people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get what you're trying to say, and I, and I agree with some of that. But um, so, I mean, in, in a way, so let's go back a little bit and talk about colonial heritage and talk about, sure. uh, can we talk for a little bit, what if the colonial powers didn't show up in Africa? I mean, I know now this is a thought experiment because now we're just back there. What if that didn't happen? How do you think would have been able to shape our own identity? Because I agree that um, somebody just landing on the shores of a country and saying, oh, people, you know, Cameroon, Zambia, because of a river or what have you. Um, right. You know, so we, we grew up accepting that. Um, so what if we didn't have all of this? What if we didn't have all of this colonial heritage or something that was being imposed on us? What maybe our identity have looked like? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question, bro. I mean, you, I'm, and, and as a philosopher, I should be able to engage in thought experiments, right? Um, but so, like, we can point to history, right? Like, for example, you know, quiet as is kept, we don't always talk about this, but when, when the U.S. was gaining independence from the British, they needed to travel around the naval coast. And in order to do that, they had to pass through the northern part of Africa. Morocco was actually the first African nation, and actually... Historians make a case Morocco was the first nation to recognize America as a sovereign nation, right? So, so even in terms of the ways in which we think about these white nations formulating their identities, they had to pass through Africa. So somebody like Herman Bennett, the historian at um, Columbia, has written a book about African sovereignty and the ways in which Western powers had to invest so much in undermining the sovereign laws of African nations to be able to do colonial impetus. So said differently, like the emergency of something like international law or positive law doesn't happen without the treaties that were broken in Africa, right? Like the ways in which African nations were creating treaties with Western nations about how to move around the continent, what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. So the truth about our history is that we've always been a power, right? Like the African continent has always been a power in the world. 
It is colonialism and the ways in which colonialism has asserted that sovereign power in which that we're dealing with now. But prior to this, I mean, all the people who had to travel through Africa had to come in with treaties and laws they had to abide by based on the African uh, sort of countries and kingdoms that they found in there, right? So it was never in this easy sort of imposition. And I think that, that's what gets lost in the ways in which part of the colonialism was to also upset the sovereignty of different African countries and kingdoms by then imposing Western norms on them. So by the time the Germans, because the Germans were never, uh, the Germans never actually participated in slavery in terms of having colonies, except maybe one of the, the colonies in Georgia or somewhere there, there was a fight that had happened. But but the scrum of Africa happens because the Germans were like, we didn't have any colonies in the Western world. We're going to go off to colonize Africa. So the World War Ones and Two are actually not a fight in Europe. It's a fight for the scrum of Africa. The way these Western nations participate. You mentioned that we are power, right? Africa is power. Knowing what we know now, and we now have this big quest for an African. Why then we still maintain these norms and these standards that have been put to us by the colonial powers? Yeah, I mean, so we can think about the education systems, right? Like, you know, one of the things I found fascinating, like when King Leopold sent missionaries to Africa, he directed the missionaries to, to actually just teach the Congolese, that they were slaves, right? Like part of what they're reading in their Bibles was to make them obedient. And so said differently, we saw that with what happened in the American South in terms of slavery and the literature that they were teaching. And we still see this today in which, again, like the very ways in which the education system has worked and even the economic system has been about imposing the inferiority of African people, right? So it is harder for you to be able to come out of a situation in which you can get back to a legacy in which your people created the very norms of civilization when those understandings are then quantified or suppressed because Western nations don't want you to know that, right? So classic example is to say even in Egypt, think about Alexandra bringing down the, the libraries, right? Timbuktu was the same way. We see that the very ways in which Africa has been deemed an economic necessity for all these Western nations because we don't ever want them to have the ability to say, as a continent, we can come together based on the countries, the resources, the people we have. And so even with immigration, this is the thing, right? The ways in which Western education is touted as the one way you become civilized, right? Like we're not sending students back into these African countries, wherever they may be, to say, go learn in Nigeria, in Cameroon, go learn in Zambia and Zimbabwe. We think education comes only in the Western hemisphere, right? If you go to English, you go to England, go to Oxford, Cambridge, you're much more educated. If you go to Harvard, as opposed to any of the schools in Africa, we assume the attainment of your education level is much more high in these Western nations. And so I think this is something that Gaddafi was on, you know, like I really encourage people to read his green books. You know, Gaddafi was very serious about the retaining, retaining and retaining of African heritage to its normalcy. He rejected democracy when we know Gaddafi had his own problematic ways. But he was very clear about the detriment of Western imposed systems that still happen in Africa. So I think for us, that is usually that is the challenge, right? Like we're dealing with educational systems, political systems that constantly reinforce the inferiority of Africans. Hmm. So um, we have a saying in Africa, right? That he who plays the drum dictates the tune. Um, right. Now, knowing all of these, we have this system that is trying to repress us. Mentioned even this whole. Knowing that I can only I'm only intellectually from spending all of first and one. Um, when then can we get to that point where we start playing that drum again? What needs to happen? Yeah, no, I think you. I was praising Afrobeats for a moment there, right? But I, I think this is the challenge. For, and this, like you're doing on this podcast, man. Like you know, it, it's the responsibility of young Africans and everybody else in the diaspora to really be invested in Africa, right? Like, you know, one of the things that even when you think about the, sort of the the colonial, anti-colonial African figures, right? I think about Kuruma was studying at Lincoln University. He went back home to be able to do these things and making sure that the ways in which Africa was liberated was also based on his understanding about Western civilization and their affinity for Africa, but to suppress the African ways in which uh, African remains as a, as a great continent. I think this becomes the responsibility for us, man. Like nobody else can take on that responsibility. You know, every human being 
is limited by sort of their environment and time period. And I think this still is the question for young Africans in the contemporary age, right? Like, how do we engage in modern politics? It's not enough. I love Afrobeats, and I'm not knocking Afrobeats, and we can talk about any other music genre. But I think that becomes important, right? Like, is it is it solely music that's going to get the African continent back to its feet? And I think for us, this is the challenge. How do we get back into environments and institutions that allow for more generative ideas from older people? And we know that most of African uh, government systems right now are still being holding to the old heads. And that's that's the challenge here, right? Like, we all have to be able to think about the ways in which Africa would be a continent that survives this imposition coming from Western and China. Um, this whole idea of um, wanting to really change is not right? We, one of the ways uh, Afrobeats, there's also this big talk of Pan-Africanism. Krumah started this whole idea, but you know, Krumah died a lonely man, you know, an exile away from his lovely Ghana. Um, so is this actually even going to work or is this just an ideal? Yeah, but you know, as philosophers, that's the point. You know, changing the world is never an easy thing. And even, I mean, think about the thought experiment of democracy, right? You've had 45 presidents in this country and I don't know who's been the most democratic president. Um, the experiment now with Trump seems to be failing, but it's always been failing because even with American democracy, we've had presidents assassinated, right? Like, you know, so there are ways in which democracy itself has its own failures that doesn't comport to other places picking up this government system. And that becomes the issue. But one thing you can say about white people, they've stuck by democracy, right? Like, all the, all the years in which they experiment with democracy and its foibles and failures, they stick to it as a government system. So I think that's the challenge in Africa, right? We've not had a modern system in which we can try and see the failures and then we, you know, figure out what is the best way to keep doing this. So pan-Africanism has its limitations, sure, but you can say democracy has the worst limitations, given that it was supposed to be the most, you know, egalitarian system. You've had slavery, you've had lynchings, right? You've had genocide under democracy. And so I think that that's still the challenge, though. You know, I, I think part of what people in the 1960s were saying was that we need to be able to have the African right to be wrong. And that's the challenge, right? We don't allow for us as a continent and people to be wrong because any other nation or any other continent has allowed its people to be wrong. We call that history. OK, um, we don't allow our people to be wrong. But the truth is that are they even trying? You know, let's just look at this Pan-Africanism, for example. Um, All right. As Africans, there is these limitations that we have set for ourselves. We we don't have a free movement, a free flow of our own people from one end of the country to another. As a Cameroonian, I can't just show up in Zambia. I have to go through extensive background checks, pay for hundreds of dollars for visa fees and so on. Is it that we need to change having how we view ourselves and maybe even trust our, our fellow Africans a lot more? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure, yes or no. And we also know that, you know, Part of part of how we used to move prior to colonialism is people would beat the drum to allow the neighborhoods to understand, like, you know, a different person from a different ethnic group was coming into the environment, right? So it was never just like, you know, Africa poorest borders. There were particular idioms and traditions that one had to adhere to to come into a new environment. Um, but your point is taken, right? absolutely, when you talk about passports. I mean, those are more Western things about the ways in which people are, are quantifying how long are you staying in this country? Are you here for particular business, right? Like that has more economic incentive and more eugenics arguments, right? Because the idea of immigration law as it emerged in the Western world was about only allowing the best of different racial groups to come into the country and settle down because they can then populate with other racial groups. But even for us in the continent of Africa, with our own understandings in which white people were coming into different places from different regions where they was making a deal within another tribal group about family relations or it was economics in terms of the crops, right? So, so Pan-Africanism doesn't have to seem so provincial because we know that across the globe, racial groups have always worried about why other people are coming into those areas, but there were particular idioms and traditions that necessitated that you're coming here for a particular reason. That's something we'd have to get back to, right? Like, what are the ways in which we negotiate the ways in which people from different ethnic and racial groups come into the continent? Let's circle back a little bit to this idea again on you know, not allowing ourselves to be wrong. But when we look at the Western societies, they have stuck with democracy. Um, we started Pan-Africanism. Krumah started this whole concept many, many years ago, in the early 60s. Um, but it looks like 
could it be that part of the problem is that um, even though the Western world will agree that democracy is not the best, there are failures, there are things that don't work in it, but we're still going to stick with it, we're still going to make adjustments. But when you look at a lot of our African context, you know, Pan-Africanism, we shun the idea, we kick, you know, crew my way, send him in isolation. Um, but then we abandoned the idea and then we didn't even try to improve the system until I think even a little bit more recently. But the OAU died, we reverted it into the AU and all of that stuff. You see that part of the process too is we are not wanting to uh, accept failure uh, or maybe the change or the struggle and say, okay, this didn't work. Now we can refine it in this particular way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, like, you know, some, some people, like, so like one way to think about it, like Karuma was also trying to do what 18th century black thinkers were doing when they moved across the Leone and, you know, Liberia. So Pan-Africanism has that long history in which in slavery, because white people didn't give, want to give us reparations, black people advocated for the creation of new African countries, right? So Leone was created because the Africans in the British British Empire were like, we don't want to be enslaved people. We know who we are and where we're coming from in the government system. Haiti created its own form of actual nation governance that threatened white people. Uh, Liberia did the same thing. And so when we talk about African governance, right, like African governance has always been a threat. Like we were talking about earlier, even in the terms of which our, uh, Western nations went to participate in slavery, Part of that was absurding the understanding that African nations had their own government systems. There was a different form of kinship and a monarchy that that was different from what Europeans were doing, right? But to undermine that, you'd have to say that black people don't know how to govern themselves. They're savages, they're barbarians, they're doing all these things to their people. And that became the impetus for colonialism, right? Democracy functions the same way, right? We look at the genocides that happened in Rwanda, for example, and we point to that to say black people cannot govern themselves, so we need to bring them Western ways of governance. So I think, again, that is the challenge, right? I mean, one way to think about it is like, you know, African borders have been open for too long, right? Since the fifth century, right? Like people have been exploring Africa for different reasons, right? I think one of the reasons why, for example, and I know this is not the same, right? I mean, Japan is not the same in terms of size of Africa, but like, Places like Japan and China, for example, close their borders so that they can deal with internal structures to be able to understand what is going to be germane for them. I don't think we've had the same ability, right? I mean, Africa has always been explored by the Western world for different reasons. We've not had the ability to close our borders off and say, internally as a continent, let's figure out what we want to do and come together. They're always in positions from the Western world to find out what exactly is happening within the confines of Africa. Today, it's not just the West, right? We have the inflow of China. China has come with, you know, this business transaction. You know, the West gives you all this promise. I am here to give you cash. And I think today I was even reading on the, on, on the BBC that uh, is the first Chinese uh, chief. Uh, Tensi yeah. title has been given to one in, in the, one of the regions in Nigeria. So you see, I mean, now we have moved to, as, you know, to, the, to the East, to China, to right. now China the new play, our play in Africa. Maybe it's like we love being pursued by others. You know, we love just mm -hmm. that pursuitment by others. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's also reality of, of political leaders were assassinated, right? Like, and, and I mean, it's comparable to, think about the Black American experience. It's almost a similar sense, right? Like, and I'm not knocking Obama, but Obama is not a Malcolm X, right? He's not, he's not, Martin Luther King. And so the ways in which we're courted leaders has to comport with what race and nations think is our proposal. So to your point, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and this is still the detriment. I mean, so the more generative question here is like, what is the responsibility for us as young Africans in the diaspora and back home in which in ways in which we want to fight for the continent? So said differently, other racial groups and continents are invested in Africa. We've known that to be a truism. What is the response to that that we have as African people? We cannot just sit idly and let, you know, it's like the French guys where the scientists were talking about experimenting in Africa, right? Like on this COVID-19 as though we're just like a elaborate thing for people. And I think that is the best of the anti-colonial movements. And even going back to the age of slavery, right, we're talking about in which enslaved Africans, when they got their freedom, were sure to say, I'm going to write this narrative in my African name. There is a real need for all of us to figure out what is our obligation to ensure that the continent 
to lives beyond all these impositions from either the West or the East. Okay. Um, I think that this now leaves us, brings us now to more practical aspect. For those of us in the diaspora, what are some things that we can do? Right? What are some things that we can do to be able to help shape this narrative? Any suggestions? Yeah, I think, you know, you know, technology right now. So I have actually one of my my one of my favorite young brothers um, from Eritrea actually started Bitcoin. He's trying to do what Akon was doing to go back to Eritrea and start sort of an economic system in which Bitcoin is being used. But I think for us, it's tapping into the African ingenuity, man. And I think, um, you know, like I said, I'm I'm here for the Afrobeats and sort of the new ways in which technology is allowed Africans to create different narratives. But I also really think, you know, there's a need for us to really think about African politics and what that looks like. And that's a little different, right? Like Barack Obama right now has been recruiting a bevy of Africans to come to the to America under his institution. I think he has like an African leadership institution. So they're really sort of like people trying to piggyback what Obama did here and take that to home. And we have to question those things, man. Like, you know, Obama, for all his liberalism and blackness, didn't like Africa. He killed Gaddafi. And he said that was one of the biggest foxhole of his political career. And so I think for us, I think there's a real question about what does modern African politics look like outside of entertainment and even things like, you know, STEM field. Like, what is the responsibility for us to create government systems that would be apropos for future generations of Africans when we're all gone? I hear you correctly. It means that um, we can't fight this fight from a distance. We can't do it on social media. We need to go back home. We need to do our part, do our bit uh, to help change the night. Uh, so does that mean that somewhere in the future you're going to be some kind of uh, an advisor to the president or I don't know? Uh, you know, maybe that, yeah. Politics, yeah, I, I could do something. I'm a philosopher, right? Like, I, I'm, I, I don't have the ability to be a politician. Um, but yeah, but I mean, and like I said, like, you know, for example, take Black Lives Matter for always engineering, man, like, you know, Things like Twitter became places for the FBI, the CIA to track down activists. I mean, the FBI released a report, I think, in early 2017 and 16 about this notion of black identity extremists in which they were using Facebook and Instagram to track down black activists and really quell down their abilities to be able to galvanize. Um, and I think for us, it's the same thing. And I, I think, you know, we have to move beyond just going back home to create this infrastructure that have entertainment value. But we have to be able to actually create political structures because like, that's pertinent. Like, you know, our grandfathers, our grandmothers really did their best to create these conditions. Africa as a continent could be moved beyond the colonialism from Western positions. And I think for all of us, we have to think about what is the legacy of Africa post-colonialism from the East and even the West. Okay, um, so some closing thoughts. In addition to this, what is an, uh, what will you advise uh, uh, an African here in the diaspora who is struggling with their own African identity? Um, because I think first, you need to first accept who you are before the sense of responsibility can now come in. Um, what sort of advice will you give to them? How do they go about either accepting or embracing that uh, African identity? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the brilliance of Black thinkers across the diaspora has always been to say that African identity is so variant, right? Like, white people have this need to sort of like create homogeneous understandings of identity, and that doesn't fit well. I think the brilliance of any person's journey, particularly the African's journey, is that it is a journey, right? We talk about the ways in which you have to go through traditions, customs, and, and those matter. And I think for Africans, that's something that we have to take seriously. There's a reason why traditions and customs were pertinent for us. We go through rituals and rites of passages that allow you to develop into the person and human being you have to be. And I think it's that returning in that sense. And I, I think we saw this, you know, those recently, this uh, movement, like the, the return to Ghana, right? The ways in which these rites of passages matter. And I think for us, man, like, it's that reality going back to traditions and customs and traditions and customs can be challenged. We can create new customs and traditions, but any, any identity is a, is a journey is something I would really just explore and, and know that there are traditions in which that journey can be taken. Thank you so much, Dalitsu, for coming to the Kairifu and sharing your thoughts with us. I know that these topics are very heavy and difficult to exhaust uh, with the limited time that we have, but you've been able to clearly articulate yourself and share with us in a concise manner um, what your thoughts are. 
Man, no, again, thank you for all that you're doing, man. I think, you know, one way that you're employing all of us is by doing the podcast. And I know also that in real life, you're somebody who takes this seriously. So for me, it's always a pleasure, bro, when we're able to converse and trade ideas. So I want to just say, again, applaud you for this platform and what it's, it's going to do and create for Africans, both on the continent and the diaspora. Again, the little I enjoyed that conversation. Everyone, I hope you are one step closer in understanding your African identity. Until next time, thank you for joining us at the Caribou. Like